Koto Welcome back to another episode of the Department of Conversation. Um, just a bit of a heads up, over the next few weeks we are going to attempt to continue our All Blacks watching All Blacks. If you haven't seen it yet, jump onto the Facebook uh, and have a look at the All Blacks versus South Africa with our guest All Black Case Muse. Uh, coming up next week, I don't want to announce it yet because we've got a bit of a... Well, hopefully a bit of a special guest for you for the Canada game. Well, they're all special guests, but a special, special guest. So jump onto the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash DEPT of conversation. And as soon as I can confirm that guest, they will go up there. All right. Well, today's guest is uh, leader of the ACT Party, David Seymour. Uh, David was gracious enough to give us maybe 50, 55 minutes, tight schedule obviously with radio interviews coming in, et cetera, et cetera, but uh, enjoy it. Uh, we Actually, just before we do that, our normal style is very kind of laid back, chilled, relaxed, and go where the conversation goes. Because David did have a limited time, it's a little bit more structure of question, answer, question, answer, which is not kind of our style, um, but it is a bit more for this one. So if you listen to it and, you, and it feels a little bit more, I don't want to use the word aggressive, but more sort of direct, that's the reason why we had a, a hard finish for him to get out of here after about 55 minutes. But anyway, it was a fun talk. It feels like part one, actually. Maybe next time uh, Mr. Seymour's in town, we can continue with the part two and expand on some of these things that we kind of just touched on. Here you go, David Seymour. Oh, that's a good question. Um, we've done a few now, so we've done um, Christchurch twice, um, Auckland, um, Fong and uh, sorry, um, I was going to say Fongaray. That's still scheduled. Um, done Palmy, uh, Wellington. Um, did I mention um, Omaru? So no, you yeah. Didn't. So you've been uh, around. Yeah, yeah. So probably I, I haven't actually counted them, but it's be close to a dozen. Are we going? We're live. We're live. Well, there you yeah. go. Just like that. Thumbs up. We are live. Yeah. David Seymour, leader of the ACT Party. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being in Dunedin. Yeah. Um, we were talking about it beforehand, us us boys kind of going, I wonder why leader of the ACT Party is coming to see us. <laughs> but you have done some strange things in your career for publicity, it would seem. Maybe not for publicity, but certainly yeah. that helped with publicity. And we uh, thought maybe we were one of those little odd idiosyncratic kind of events. I think I've been very honest and authentic, and that's actually got, some attention along the way. I mean, the the video that I did when I first started campaigning, the the high 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 video that some people may remember, got about fifty thousand views. It was just it was just me introducing myself to the electorate, um, literally we, we, saying hi. Yeah, yeah, like five times, hi hi hi. And we didn't set out to make something that would go viral or whatever, but it did because it was natural. So I don't know, but no, I mean, I come to Dunedin, you know, at least a few times a year, probably probably every sort of two or three months on average. Um, and, you know, it's a great town and I've always got a good reception here. Well, thanks for coming in. We did find this. We thought we'd share this with the punters as well. Um, a lovely little video of you and Max Key that's got a fair <laughs> amount of uh, attention over the days. Uh, yeah. If we're lucky, it might pop up here. Um, this was during your Dancing with the Stars uh, performances. I, I think it was a bit after it, but, yeah, in any case, yeah. I think you said in the end of it, this is how you vote for him. <laughs> Have we got it, lads? Standby. Standing by. Um, and tell me about that, Dancing with the Stars. Was it a, a good experience? Oh, here we go. Here's the, here's the sexiness showing itself <laughs> as all in one go. This looks like more like a How It Was Made version. Yeah, I think this is behind the oh, scenes. I've never seen this. Oh, haven't you? No. you got to say. I didn't realise that. I didn't realise they'd publish that. It. it was amazing. <laughs> how much, so how much of this is – so this is when Key was still Prime Minister? No, no, he hadn't been. Oh, okay. So this is a, this is just PM for a while. Oh, okay, it's 2018. Yeah, 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 you're right. So you know, you know Max because of the connection to John. Obviously, you worked with him. No, no. I I think John may have given Max my number, perhaps, but um, regretfully so <laughs> didn't didn't do the introduction. Oh, look. I think um, basically the deal with um, with Max was that I actually quite admire Max. I think that. You know, he gets put in this position he didn't choose. Yeah. Um, and he's actually just had a lot of fun and probably capitalised a bit on being the Prime Minister's son. And that's one of the things about life, right? It's not the cards you get dealt, it's how you handle them. Yeah. Um, so he got in touch, said, will you do this? And I, I actually said no a couple of times, but a little <laughs> bit like you guys with your podcast, you're very persistent, kept asking, yeah. and I, I decided to go on. So, um, yeah, look, it was a bit of fun and it rated well. And I think anything that shows people that politicians are human – 
um, is actually good for democracy. I don't think it's helpful when people feel increasingly alienated from the parliament. And you see that happening in the UK. There's a palpable sense that um, the people in the parliament don't represent the people outside the parliament. There's and, a distance. Yeah, and look, I don't think it's ever a bad thing to be able to have a laugh at yourself and and actually, you know, so I don't I don't feel that I'm aloof or at a different level from, from other people in the community. It's interesting, though, as you were saying this, I was just thinking about you know, Max Key um, came to prominence as the Prime Minister's son and then used that to do various things. Fair mm. enough. Mm. Don't, I don't know anything about your family. Is that by mm. choice? You keep all that stuff on the DL? Yeah, I mean, look, my, my view is that, um, you know, if New Zealand is very good and that generally they don't go after people for their private lives or their family or whatever. And I think that's a, I think that's a very civilised way to be. Yeah. It's not like American politics where, you know, everything's sort of in play. But I think there is a bit of a rule that, you know, if you use your family as a political tool, then it's fair game. Yep, yep. Um, so by and large, I've chosen not to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I talk about my family sometimes, but I haven't, you know, sort of rolled them out for photo ops or whatever, because I think as soon as you do that, people are saying, okay, you've presented yourself as, as this. Um, and then, you know, you've got potentially people going to attack your family or, you know, if you have a family tragedy or whatever, then people could attack them for that. I mean, not that I have, but I don't want, that extra dimension in my politics. It's not just a political situation, mm. though. It's a profile situation. I well remember, uh, you know, various celebrities wheeling out their newborn babies in various mm. women's magazines. Mm. Yet then when they had a marriage breakup, they were like, mm. leave my family alone. Well, actually, you've you've put your family into the public eye. Yeah, exactly. And even though it might seem a little bit icky, mm. like the public want to know. And actually, if you hadn't have put them in mm. the public eye, you would have had a leg to stand on to say, keep your distance. So no, mm. I, I get that completely. Mm. Hey, um, it would be wrong of me on this incredibly interesting international political day mm. with one of our lawmakers, our politicians, to not ask you about Donald Trump at the moment and see mm. what you think is going on over there. Because today in particular with the mm. whistleblower mm. papers coming out, it's a mm. very interesting time. Mm. Got any thoughts around what's happening at the moment? None whatsoever. Um, uh, uh, about two years ago, I decided that you know everyone's got a limited amount of thinking space, and um, to try and follow the machinations of American politics with Trump being what he is, and with the rather complex and convoluted system they have for checks and balances and impeachments and so on. Um, I I don't follow it closely. Um, I'm interested in the the policy implications of it. You know, more at a macro level. Um, how Trump is dealing with the relationship between the US and China, mm -hmm. uh, what his disposition is toward trade, because that really matters to um, New Zealand, uh, what his disposition is on the role of America as kind of the world's policeman, which it has been for a long time, which yep. New Zealand, frankly, has benefited from. Yep. Um, so I'm interested in those issues. But so far as like who said what in the last 24 hours, I mean, you, you know, you can either spend your whole life trying to keep up with that or <laughs> you do other things. It's always um, uh, looking at the American system and looking at how it works. Mm -hmm. It seems that what they consider right wing, the, the GOP, most countries would consider kind of further right than just right. Like our, if you line up our politics against their mm. politics, I always used to remember talking to my American political friends mm. and watching their heads explode, explode when I talked about things like our quote-unquote right-wing prime minister mm. uh, supported things like you know, working for families and interest-free student loans and these sorts of things, which some in America think are a far-left um, ideal. Mm. Well, it's... I think it's it's really interesting to actually line up objectively where New Zealand and the United States are on a range of policy positions um, because people tend to get into caricatures of countries. You know, the Scandinavians are socialist. Well, in many respects, they're very market-oriented countries. Um, you know, America's right wing, well, actually, in many respects, they are way to the left of us. And I would argue that by and like, large... Like what? What aspects? Oh, um, trade and agricultural subsidies. Mm. You know, I mean, they basically put heavy tariffs on importing things that could be very good for the American consumer, but yep. that's heavily tariffed. 
Um, they subsidise a lot of very inefficient farm producers, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why the quality of food in the United States is actually very low. The volume's high, but they basically get a lot of low-quality subsidised stuff. Um, take a look at tax rates. You know, their tax rates in many states, if you add together your federal, then your state, and in some cases even city income taxes, uh, you could be paying over 50%. Mm. So if you talk to your American friends and say the highest income tax rate in New Zealand is 33 cents, uh, there's no basic personal exemption, um, and we generally don't have any of the avoidance and stuff that, that you guys have, mm-hmm. um, I think they'd say, whoa, you guys are very much to the right, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, of where we are. But, and, but if you then mm. include, did the same thing and included things like GST, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm. obviously a real, real world application is going to be more than 33%. Um, no, because the, the way to really judge it is what is government expenditure at all levels of government as mm-hmm. a percentage of GDP. Um, so, you know, in New Zealand, that's about 40. I think in us in the States, it's maybe in the mid to high 30s. So in terms of the overall, um, uh, you know, level of government expenditure, um, we're, we're a bit higher, but not not much, not, nothing substantial. And then you look at what you get for it. So, I mean, the big difference is that, um, you know, we have a universal uh, health insurance single payer system. Yep. Um, they don't have that. But, but even then, you know, people forget um, Medicare and Medicaid, um, one for the poorer Americans, one for the older Americans, um, those two public health care systems, um, you know, are incredibly generous, even by New Zealand standards. So, you know, there's a lot of caricatures about the the US. I would say that New Zealand ranks more on the free market end of things. Mm -hmm. And actually, the free market think tanks of the world, the Heritage Foundation and the Fraser Institute, who do league tables of how free market a country is, uh, consistently put New Zealand in the top three. And the US is seldom in the top 10 these days. So we are much in terms of free markets, we're, we're way to the right of the US. I've um, asked this exact question of uh, both uh, David Clark and um, Marama Davidson. I'd like to ask it of you as well, being someone in a different part of the political spectrum. Mm. Can you explain to our American friends, if they were mm. listening, how we managed to do a quote-unquote free public health care mm. and many in the American political system could say we can't? Mm. We can't. Mm. They would say we can't afford it. How do we mm. manage to do it and they can't? Well, I mean, they, they, they could do it. Um, but there would be a lot of political resistance because of the fact that, you know, from their point of view, our system is really quite strange. You know, I've, for various reasons in the last few years, had to visit a few friends in hospital, and you think about it, you walk in there, um, anyone can walk in and out, nobody really owns it, Mm. Uh, there's no contract, there's no payment, you just kind of get what you're given, Um, and I've been in there for a few reasons, some of those people I call friends are really well, they have become friends, but they're really constituents that I've been trying to help um, when they've been underserved. Um, and really the only way that they can get stuff back is politicised. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why for them, they say, okay, the state's going to take your money and in a very sort of, I guess, um, oblique way, we will give you back um, some sort of health care, but, but don't try and pin us down on exactly what. So I understand their resistance. Um, the other thing I'd say is that you know, a lot of people, and, and and I experienced this when I lived in Canada, they say there's two kinds of healthcare in the world. There's what the Americans have and what we have. Well, actually, there's quite a wide range of systems. So if you look at the French, who at various times have been um, rated as having the best healthcare in the world, they have a mixture of public and private where it's mandatory to have insurance. Um, everybody has private insurance. If you have low income the government subsidises your private insurance scheme. And if you get sick and have to go to a hospital, um, there's probably about an even chance that it'll be a private hospital or a public hospital. So I think we need to start stop thinking about, you know, the Americans are all bad and, and free market because they're not, and that's a, another story we can talk about, why, <laughs> why the American system is filled with state-sponsored bureaucracy mm-hmm. um, and our system somehow better because it's not. It's actually quite terrible in a lot of respects. And then start saying, well, actually, there's other options. How do they do it in Japan? How do they do it in France? You know, how do they do it in Singapore? How um, do you there's think, many models. If you're looking at all these models, mm. out of interest, how do you think we might improve our system? Would you like to see uh, everyone's insured 
and then there's help for those who can't afford it. Because I guess the the, mm. the way I look at it, and I want to mm. get on to euthanasia mm. with you shortly. Mm. My mm. mum passed away 11 months ago from motor neuron disease. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, uh, uh, thank you. Um, the best of the public health system. I saw the best mm. of it, mm. right? Mm. Not saying that those stories about the person mm. with cancer having to go to Sydney for treatment is not true and accurate, yeah. but yeah. I, I saw the best of it. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I think that what I've seen of the system, how uh, – yeah. so we had an accident using a wood – Cutter splitter the other day straight to A and E mm. no bills. Mm. Um, I have a um, an issue with my eye duct being blocked. Mm. I have health insurance, so mm. I'm going that path. Mm. It's like having the option seems to be. Mm. It seems to the American model. A lot of people seem to be saying whether they're true or not. It's all or nothing. Mm. It's either all private healthcare mm. or it's all public healthcare. Mm. We have a system where we can pick, and mm. then after we pick, we can still use both systems. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's just do a quick rehearsal of what's wrong with the American system. Okay. You know, people, people say, people. I mean, well, okay. Look, I'll answer your question first. Look, one of the reasons the New Zealand system has a lot of support is that overwhelmingly, uh, people go to the New Zealand healthcare system and they see first-rate doctors, nurses, and other allied health professionals that are really intrinsically motivated and do a great job. And, um, you know, it continues to enjoy a lot of public support, even though often the morale within the system is quite low because of the way it's managed. So, you know, there's no question that most people have a positive experience and it's not a major political issue because of that. Um, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, you ask what sort of model for New Zealand. It is a lot more difficult um, than just taking a model like, say, France's and planting it here. Of course. And the reason for that is that, you know, Paris, for example, is a city of 12 million people, so they can have a real marketplace with many insurers, many providers, and it kind of works, right? Yeah. Um, you know, on the west coast of the South Island, even in a place here like Otago, which is a relatively large population centre, but by global standards, um, well, there's not enough to have most of the specialists at a high level in a hospital, let alone two competing hospitals. So. Yeah. Um, the, the, the design of the system in New Zealand is harder. I do think that it would be good to have more separation between the purchaser of the service uh, and the provider because often there's people who want to provide, you know, lab testing and so on, um, and they're providing it to a DHB which has its own provision arrangements. So when it comes to providing uh, or getting some sort of competition and efficiency, um, you know, there's good reasons why that hasn't come along as well as it might have. Mm. Um, you know, because the, the, this purchaser provider split is gone. It's also a problem, in my view, that you've got what 20. I always forget if it's 28 or 21 DHBs. In any case, it's it's an absurdly high number um, for the number of people being served in this country. So, look, I think. You know, fewer DHBs, fewer purchases, um, and a split between those who purchase and commission the services, those who provide them, would be helpful. Basically, that is what New Zealand had in the 90s. Um, but it fell down in large part because people were unwilling to accept that the purchaser would say, we just aren't going to cover some services some people want. Right. Far, far easier for a DHB um, to say, look, we'll get to you, and whether they ever do doesn't matter so much. They don't explicitly make the statement. But, I mean, just to rehearse the Americans, I'm not going to go on too much, but um, look, first of all, um, you know, most people have no idea what their health insurance costs. Why? Because it's paid by their employer. Why? Because of tax exemptions. Why? Because during World War II they had price controls or wage restrictions, and so employers started offering tax-exempt health care in, uh, insurance uh, as a way to compete for workers. Mm -hmm. um, you can't get health insurance that competes across state lines. Why? I have no idea. Um, there are many states, which are effectively a monopoly, um, where there are mandatory minimum numbers of things to be insured. So, for instance, in some states, health insurance has to cover reading glasses. Guess what happens in those states? People replace their reading glasses, if I remember rightly, six times more often. It's sort of like having car insurance that includes car washers. Of course everyone's got it. You know, so, so people wonder why it's more expensive. Um, and then they've got their tort laws, which are just completely crazy, um, where – you know, I mean, it's amazing anyone still operates or gives medical advice in the States because you get your ass sued and lose everything. Um, 
So, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why healthcare in the US is very expensive for the outcomes that they get, and there's reasons why a lot of poorer people can't access it. Um, but most of those reasons are actually caused by government-imposed bureaucracy. Uh, and I think the problem with Obama's reforms is that he, he tried to fix the supply side and force everybody to buy insurance. The problem was no one could afford it because for, for reasons that were just outlined. Anyway. Um, would it be fair to say that one of the uh, themes of ACT, maybe one of the themes of, themes of the parties that are on the, the, the right – do you mind that the, being kind of identified as the right side of politics? Is that something that doesn't um, resonate with you? Look, I, I, I think it's a bit defunct because yeah. um, how do people understand a party that um, you know wants low taxes, wants personal responsibility – but also eschews what I view as, frankly, the, the moral bigotry of being you know, anti-abortion and anti-assisted dying and, and, and really trying to impose you know, a, a sort of social straitjacket on people. Mm. So, you, you know, right doesn't really allow you to yeah. capture that. But I'm not going to get hung up yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, no, I don't want to yeah. pigeonhole you either. Yeah. So rather yeah. than using those terms, I'll just say mm. ACT um, and we're one of the – I've interviewed I've interviewed Rodney Hyde probably ten times. I used to enjoy yeah, interviewing yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, smaller government. You mentioned yep. fewer DHBs, for example, seems to be a common theme. Mm. Um, I've always wanted to understand that because mm. I don't think smaller government is better. Um, I don't think bigger government is better. I think better government is better. Mm. Now, in some stages, we probably do need reductions, and in mm. other places, we probably mm. need expansions on areas within government. Mm. Do you do you think smaller is always better? Because, it, as I say, that mm. is a traditional position of a political party <coughs> in the position we're acting in. Well, you can always find examples of where government should be actually doing more. I mean, one of them is. Um, you know, the welfare state is really a social insurance scheme. Your taxes are your premiums, your payout is when something goes wrong. Um, you know, I think there are people with disabilities who actually get a really shoddy payout. Mm. Um, and the question is, how can you differentiate people who, you know, really through no fault of their own could do with a bit more um, from people who are just taking the piss? And I that's really quite difficult to do yeah. because you know once you make the cri- the criteria wider or the payments more generous there, there are always going to be people that come along and try to take advantage and that's a shame but there's one area um the obvious other really obvious answer um you know as an Aucklander I would say it's just embarrassing to look at the motorway network that was laid out in blueprint in the 1950s mm-hmm. and what's actually been built I mean only about probably less than half of it is actually there. Mm. Um, Mayor Robbie, yeah, he had a good plan. Well, uh, yeah, I I mean, I'm not that good at the the exact history of the mayors, but but certainly I've seen the 1950s blueprints. Um, We've had 60 years to build build half of it. It's outrageous. And, of course, the flow-on effects of that is that, you know, can the average person who does everything right, who, you know, goes to school, does their homework, gets some sort of qualification, gets a job and, and earns an okay salary, can they afford a house of their own? Well, mm-hmm. they can't. Why? Uh, it's not that there's a shortage of land. There's a shortage of infrastructure to connect land with opportunity, by which I mean jobs and education. So, you, you know, that's an area where I think government hasn't done enough. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there, there's, 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 you can be a free market here and still say, well, I, I think, you know, disabled people should be looked after better and, um, you know, the, the Auckland Motorway Network should be completed and you can make the same arguments for the, the South Island. I mean, you make the same argument for rural New Zealand. Oh, there you go. You know, it's I've, probably the 50s one that the boys have just bought up. Oh, there you go, yeah. So, I mean, you've got basically a, um, a, a loop um, a ring, ring road, ring, yeah, yeah right. you've got a ring road. I think you should have three. If it's the right one, you should have three um, harbour crossings. Um, although they they don't seem to have gone across the north there, so um, you, you start to get the idea. East Auckland, there's a lot better connected. Um, you know, that's never been built. But so, it, sound, it yeah. sounds like what you're saying, and and mm. what we do with this this thing normally is have relaxed and laid back mm. conversations. Mm. We're being a bit more kind of question answer question because you do have a, a tight finish of four o'clock. Okay. Um. So it sounds like kind of what you're saying is it's not about bigger or smaller; it's about better. I mean, yeah. Is, you agree with that? Because there is yeah. often that smaller is better, but better is better. Yeah, but but I mean. You know, I've just come up with two examples of where government could do more. Yeah. Um, look, I would say that the way that 
the middle class has been sold the promise of the cap and gown photo for every kid yeah. over the last 30 years. Yeah. Uh, the, the price controls, the increased subsidies um, have actually ruined the value of university education. Um, I think that is a real travesty. Um, I think that the way that the Ministry of Education tries to centrally control uh, you know what schools you can go to, what who can open up a school, um, you know how they're funded, what sort of employment contracts the teachers can be on. That has really killed so much innovation that could help kids a lot more. And we saw that innovation for a brief flicker when we allowed charter schools. Um, so there's big government. As I've said, I think the healthcare system um, is overzealously regulated from the centre and has too much of a regional bureaucracy as well. I think that a lot of the middle class welfare, you know, working for families, uh, pensions at 65, mm -hmm. um, we've talked about interest-free student loans and fees-free, these are, these are not things that are done because you could seriously win the argument in front of a, t a panel of disinterested observers. They're done because they appealed to the voters a particular government yeah. needed at a particular time. Oh, they're, 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 uh, there's, yeah. no, there's no um, question that some um, policy yeah, the, is the, based the resource, on populism. Yep, yeah, the, resource, the Resource Management Acts and the way that instead of asking the question, is this person using their property in a way that harms the property of others, i.e. a property rights approach, um, instead says councils have to create master plans mm -hmm. for whole regions mm -hmm. and then everyone has to ask permission within the rubric of that master plan to do anything with their own property. Put housing out of reach for a lot of people. Uh, it's been bad for the development of a lot of the rural and agricultural sector but also it's been terrible for the environment. Um, so you know th that's an area where I think we've been overzealous as regulators. And you just look at this current government. I mean, I'm going to start calling them the tally ban. Look, plastic bags banned. Uh, offshore oil and gas exploration banned. Vape juice about to be banned. Speech in risk of being banned. Um, AR-15s, centre centre rails banned. They're just constantly banning things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's look at the vape one, for example. Mm. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? What do you think should be happening with vaping? I noticed the other day, actually, as I was going through a supermarket, mm. that all the uh, vaping product was out on display. Mm. But of course, all the cigarettes are hidden mm. away. Mm. And mm. I was wondering, what's the what's the difference? I, I've actually mm. I actually phoned the Labor Department. Mm. That's what they're still called, MBIE, whatever it is. Yeah, well, the Department of Labor is, is within MBE. Yeah, yeah. and because what I wanted to know was, I have guests that come along, and are you allowed to vape in a workplace? Mm. You can't smoke in a workplace, mm. but are you able to vape in a workplace? And they told me it's, it's exactly question. the same as smoking. But I'm like, well, it's not because I can see it on it's the not, shelf. It's not regulated as a tobacco product. Mm. So, so what is it? I mean, mm. so yeah, I don't you, know. You the talked about that. personal responsibility yeah. as well. Mm. Where does the line of personal responsibility come in? And I know I don't know if it was today, but either act. When I say either act or yourself, I guess <laughs> you kind of are act. Well, I know. Has, I mean, but you've made a statement yeah. about the ten percent increase on tobacco, for example, being pointless. And there was mm, an article mm, from twenty eighteen mm, where you guys mm, wanted a seventy five percent reduction mm, in tax on mm, tobacco. Mm, mm. There it is. There. Yeah, and look, I think that's actually the right thing to do. Why? Why? Because first of all, you got to ask three questions. Well. Let me say again, you've got to ask three questions about any policy. What's the intent? How effective has it been? And what's the side effects? Yeah. Uh, well, the intention presumably was to reduce smoking rates. Yeah. Uh, the effectiveness is that smoking rates actually went down faster for the five years before the policy was introduced than the first five years are rolling 10% increases. Um, and what are the side effects? Well, the government now takes $2 billion a year mainly out of the poorest households in mm -hmm. New Zealand. You know, getting rid of that tax on nicotine um, is one of the most profound po poverty reduction processes uh, that the government could possibly go through. So what do we do? If, if, if the tax is not going to work, mm. I mean, you would agree that mm. smoking is bad? Yeah, I mean, look, I, ba I think... Ba it, I a think bad health system? I think I mean, are, you, are you a smoker? I, Have no, you been no, a smoker? No, I, I mean, I think it's bad, but, but the question is not, whether I think it's bad, I think lime milkshakes are bad. Yeah, that's different from my political position. Um, and my political position is: look, if people want to do it, then fine. You know, it's not the end of the world. I, I, I think it's, I think it's ultimately a bad choice for your life, but it's not the end of the world. So that feels so, a bit libertarian. Yeah. Well, look, who am I to say 
that, you know, I don't really know you. I don't know if you smoke. I don't know what your aspirations are or your position. Who am I to say whether or not you should smoke or not? I can tell you all the statistics and the facts and there's a chance it'll kill you and heart disease and, you know, all the rest. I mean, I, I get it. I can tell you all that. But honestly, as a politician sitting here right now, can I tell you if it's really in your best interest or not? I don't know enough about you. Well, I think, no, uh, look, I think when you say things like lime milkshakes, Mm. you can make that argument, but smoking is bad for you. If you tried a lime milkshake, I'm an idiot. (laughs) I mean, when I was in my Mm. 20s and stuff, I enjoyed the odd Mm. cigarette with a beer Mm. and stuff. I mean, I'm sure most of us are the the same. I Mm. mean, were you, are you a smoker now? Mm. No, 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 I have been in the past. Yeah, well, so we've all done it in the past. We've all figured out a Mm. way to to get Mm. over it. Mm. But surely you you sitting there saying, I can't tell you whether it'll be good or bad for you about smoking. You can say if smoking will be good or bad for you. Well, (laughs) no, because it depends on what your overall aspirations are. Like if I want to die 15 years early? Uh, no, you might not want to do that, but you might decide that you get something out of it that is worth the risk. And that's that's your personal values. Okay. Uh, I, it's, not, it's, not, it's not up for me, because you think about it, for me to answer the question of whether you should smoke or not, yeah. I have to know what's important to you. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And, and I don't know what's important to you. And, and, and just start, think about it for a moment. Wouldn't it be weird if I did? Yeah, you know? no, no. Like, I, I actually, I actually accept what you're saying yeah. is fair enough, but I, I accept it as fair mm. enough yeah. if it's consistent as well. Mm. So, in other words, surely you must support things like, oh, you silly things like helmets on motorbikes. You shouldn't worry about that if it's my choice. If my, if I get uh, a more enjoyment about having the wind in my hair mm. than the safety of the helmet, mm. Act would support that. Well, what about things like like cannabis, mm. uh, heroin, mm. that kind of stuff? Mm. Uh, you're not going to sit there and say it's bad for me if it's. If, if, if my well, choices there's, well, there's imply a, there's it doesn't. A di- there's a different argument if there are spillover effects on other people. Sure. So, you know, the example of the, the helmet on the motorbike. Yep. Um, I guess really the question is, you know, are you prepared to pay the, the price of that risk? And it's not it's actually... the same as smoking. There well, is a price well, to that yeah, as well. Yeah, and so... It might be a 40-year price rather than a 40-second price. Well, I'm talking about the cost to others, mainly through the okay. health system. So, you know, the interesting thing is that because smokers tend to die earlier, they collect less super. Yeah. Um, but they still pay quite a lot of tax in the meantime. And, I mean, they do cost a little bit more to the healthcare system, but not much because everyone's going to die of something. Right. So it's not necessarily more expensive. Um, and then they pay a huge amount of excise tax on, on nicotine. So, yeah, yeah. You, you know, when you put it all together, smokers are like fiscal heroes to the nation. Like, you know, we couldn't do without them. It sound, but um, it sounds like what you're saying yeah. is if you can afford to make bad decisions, that's fine. If yeah. you can't afford to make bad decisions, then it's okay for us to regulate. Well, there's, to a certain extent, that's always going to be true. I right. mean, if you have more money, you have more choices. Yeah. You know, that's, that's absolutely, you know, try buying a car, try buying, try, try going dining tonight, you know, whatever you do. Uh, if you have more money, you have more choices. That's, that's not something I've invented. That's just the way the world's been for a long time. Um, we're going to skip through a couple of other things as well because I do mm. want to talk to you about the euthanasia bill. Yeah. Um, one of the I, things I want to talk mm. to you about, as I said, 11 mm. months ago my mum mm. passed away, mm. uh, motor neuron disease. Mm. Uh, I understand from a family member she'd said to them like a week before she died, mm. if I could jump off a bridge I would have. Mm. Um, uh, that's one story from mm. one family member who's told me yeah. about that conversation. Mm. Uh, I thought I'd get to the end of her Mm. passing and be really clear mm. and I got to the end of her passing and it made me more confused about euthanasia mm. because mm. we had uh, experiences and we actually had I, it was purely by chance but the first podcast I did after she passed mm. was with a academic from the university mm. here who's one of her areas of specialties mm. was end of life decisions mm. and she's a bioethicist called Janine mm. Winters mm. Um, and I realised that there's more than just the person involved in this decision. Mm. I got to spend the last 24 hours with my mum. Mm. Uh, I got to sit there after she'd passed for an hour and a half, just me mm. and her in the room, waiting for the, uh, the, um, the her, her body to be taken. I didn't want to leave her, so I was, mm. but I found that to be really special. Mm. Uh, when we were speaking with Dr. Winters, now this is what I want to ask you because mm. this changes, you know, your, your bill may have changed and these things may not be a part of it. She said one of her concerns was actually the autonomy of the patient to be able to make the decision for themselves with no consultation with, for example, family members. Mm. That someone could actually say, I'm, I'm done, I want out. Mm. Tell the doctor that and that's decision made. Mm. Now, I understand that we want to be responsible for our own actions, yeah. but 
there is other people involved mm. in this person's life mm. to be a part of this decision-making mm. process. Mm. Is that still a part of the bill? Is that being tweaked? Because I know there has been changes mm. of recent times. Mm. So the bill um, requires the doctor to encourage a person to discuss with friends, family members, counsel, and so on, but also tells them that they're not strictly required to. Right. And that's really important for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that you know there might be a person that the, the person, the patient really doesn't want to talk to who could be a very negative influence. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea that, that we would pass a law that forced people to talk to them, yeah. um, well, well, that would actually be doing some harm. So that's the first thing. The second is that if you think about it, medical privacy has been around for a long time. Um, people make decisions every day that have life or death inter- implications. Mm-hmm. Sign do not resuscitate, decide whether or not to be um, operated on, um, You know, decide whether to continue a certain treatment or start a new treatment. I mean, the, 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 these decisions every day, probably I suspect thousands of such decisions are made in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, the, the gist is that privacy trumps all. Yeah. Um, now, some people say, I don't want my family member to be able to make that decision. Uh, without consulting me. Well, actually, they, they can already make lots of decisions. Um, and frankly, if you need Parliament to pass a law to make your family talk to you, maybe it's time to start being a better family member. <laughs> True. The other thing, and I've, I jotted it down just to make sure I wouldn't get it wrong, um, at that time, remember this is October, November of last year, it may mm. have changed, that her big, she, she wasn't basically, she wasn't a, a you know pro-life campaigner. She was a doctor who she talked about the Oregon model where they mm. give out a pill and mm. that was so she mm. was in favour of that. So mm. this is not coming from a doctor mm. who was anti mm. the yeah, idea. Yeah. She said the uh, the capacity for a person to make a decision mm. and the concerns about coercion. Mm. And she said then both of those are decided by the doctor. Mm. And she said doctors are not trained to make those decisions. And mm. that was another concern of hers in the bill. Mm. be interested to get your take mm. on that now. Yeah, so a couple of things there. First of all, it's two doctors. And if they have any uncertainty, then either of them can say, look, not sure about this one, we're going upstairs, mm. by which in practice means the bill requires they refer them to a psychiatrist. Um, so Why don't you just yeah. include that from mm. the start? Well, because actually I, I think when she says doctors are not trained to make this decision, I mean, come on. Um, every day doctors have to help patients make decisions um, about a whole range of treatment options, as I, as I discussed a moment ago. Um, the idea that you know doctors have no idea whether the, the patient's actually competent and able to make the decision and being coerced and they just go ahead anyway. I think that it's probably yeah. plausible, in my opinion, mm. for the capacity thing, you can see that. But mm. the coercion thing, mm. no, I don't. I, what she was saying is as a medical doctor, mm. Specifically, that she did mm. mention both of them, but how, how mm. does that, without the training to be able to still know mm. that, that's something that she thought shouldn't be put mm. on the medical fraternity. Yeah, and you know there'll be a, there'll be a range of views within the within the medical profession. Um, of course, doctors don't have to do this. Yeah, that's um, the other thing they, I was going to ask. And if they they can they can opt out, and some doctors will, and they will be those um, who understand that they have a duty to find out if a person's competent and and stop if there's any reason to suspect that they're coerced. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know there may be some doctors who don't feel they're capable. Um, you know, I know ophthalmologists who don't do heart surgery. That's that's <laughs> that. Every doctor has a a sense of what their specialties are. Um, but you know, on the coercion issue generally, this is one of the arguments. That not that your friend the doctor is necessarily an opponent or you are, but the opponents have zeroed in on this because they've said, what if there's undetectable coercion? And it reminds me of a time I was at a British airport and this airport security staffer said to me, has anybody put anything in your bag without your knowledge? And How I, would you know? Well, well, yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, so it's a great argument, yeah. right? Because it's the easiest thing in the world to claim and impossible to disprove. Well, yeah. actually... Um, we have figured out how to disprove it because if assisted dying around the world was premised on coercion, that you know weaker, more vulnerable people were being pushed into it, mm-hmm. then it would show up in the data in the following way. You would see a spike in the number of people who perhaps didn't have good health insurance, didn't have good access to palliative care, people who had psychological traits of being more agreeable, people who weren't so educated, would be people that would be sort of more likely to, to show up. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is this has been studied at some length and the opposite is true. 
Um, this is something where generally you have to fight through the bureaucracy to, to get it. Um, and so, you know, people that access assisted dying in countries like the Netherlands and Oregon typically are more educated, have more access to palliative care, interestingly, more access to health insurance, generally more assertive people um, who are more used to getting their way, frankly. And when you look at the rigmarole you have to go through to get it, mm -hmm. um, that's not entirely surprising. So, yeah, if I thought there was a coercion issue as a libertarian, I, I wouldn't be supporting this because, you know, if I believe in not harming other people, the last thing I want is a... A, 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 you know, a regime where you can be in, involuntarily killed. Um, but, you know, we've, we've been around and around this mulberry bush and there, there is no evidence of that happening. In fact, it's the opposite. Um, we've got about another uh, 10 minutes or so, so mm. we will move on. As I say, n next time you come back, and I'm sure there'll be... So far, so good. I'm sure there'll be... All the leaders will come and see us next year, eh, Jace, for a particular reason. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's talk about the to freedom to speak. To. The freedom to speak to her. Mm. What what are what are we losing when it comes to? I don't feel any restrictions on me about speech at the moment, but maybe I'm just mm. a big dumb idiot who doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> what's what what's the what's it all about? What are we losing? Well, I think first of all, you're right that freedom of speech in New Zealand's been very well protected to date, um, and that is something that we should really jealously guard. Um, I think what's happened in the last six months with the government. Uh, promising to take a largely defunct part of the Human Rights Act, Section 61, yep. um, that hasn't been used successfully in court since 1979, when it was actually part of a different act at that point. Um, anyway, the, the, the idea they're going to take that, they're going to strengthen it up somehow, they haven't said how, but make it more likely that there'll be successful prosecutions for people for saying... For things such as... Well, for for things that, that this is the problem, right? It's it's going to be things that we don't we don't know exactly what people will be prosecuted for, but it will be things that I can tell you one thing about will be politically unpopular in the times of the day. Are they going to be what we see in things like Canada with Jordan Peterson? That are those the kind of concerns? I think I think a really good example talking in Dunedin right now. Um, would be what has just happened to Professor James Flynn's uh, application to have a book published by a private publishing company. Mm. I don't know if you followed the story, but um, the long and short of it, uh, James Flynn is a terrible lefty. Yeah. Um, he's been a candidate multiple times for the now thankfully defunct Alliance Party. Right. He's also one of the most prominent academics New Zealand's ever produced, the, the Flynn effect, the idea that each generation scores higher on IQ tests than its predecessor, um, is named after him and very few New Zealand academics have a globally recognised um, scientific term named after them. Um, and he's written a book which is basically making the case for free speech on university campuses. Yeah. <laughs> the great irony is that the publisher wrote back to him and said, we're scared to publish it because the UK laws... Um, are opposed to stirring up resentment along a whole lot of demographic lines. Mm. So you can draw a straight line from the laws the British Parliament made in the Public Order Act 1986, and they've amended it and added to it progressively over the years, um, and a, 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 a top-class academic who's not of the hard right, he's of the absolute opposite, um, being refused publication of a book about freedom of speech. Yeah. And so what I've said is... We got it pretty good in New Zealand. If the government is going to make a proposal to upgrade Section 61 that, that you've got there, yep. um, I'm going to put up a private member's bill which proposes to remove such sections completely because if they haven't been used since 1979, they're not doing much good. And I would rather affirm that New Zealanders have a right to freedom of expression um, than risk getting into a debate on the back foot. So is this more, I'm just looking at your, uh, on your website, your mm. Facebook page about the event in Christchurch and it says, mm. uh, we live in a time of fearful conformity mm. where people feel afraid to say mm. what they really think. Mm. Um, I don't know whether you put that up or mm. that was the person. Yeah, no, I wrote it. that. Yeah, okay. I think that's true. To, again, Forgive me if I'm being naive. It feels a bit like the right in America saying, there's a war on Christmas. There's a war on Christmas. Whilst in well, Central Park, yeah. there's the world's largest yeah, Christmas yeah, tree. Yeah, 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 yeah. So well, I'd like to actually understand well, that's it. Well, that's an unkind comparison. Let me, tell you, oh, let, me tell, let me tell you where that came from. Yeah. Um, I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago um, who works in market research, mm -hmm. and they watch people, you know, doing focus groups. Yeah, yeah. And they said, look, it's 
it's been really noticeable in the last few years the climate has changed and you watch how people feel each other out to try and work out what the acceptable thing to say sort is. Sort of in the group they can see this yep. happening. Yep, so right. they're actually seeking approval. They're seeking what is you know what, what are the things you're allowed to say and what yep. are the things you're not allowed to say. Yep. Um, and I think that is uh, something that's not just a one-off. Um, obviously this person is, is an interesting person to talk to about it because they see a large range of randomly selected people and they're mm -hmm. professional. Um, but then you go to anecdotally, um, a, a lot of people, you know, message me and say, you know, I, I feel like I can get in trouble for expressing my views. A lot of students on campus uh, feel that there's an endorsed view on a range of issues. Sure. And if they feel differently, uh, then they're, they're going to be in a certain amount of trouble. I'm, I'm just trying to think who asked me about well, this. Well, actually, I, I also guess you would get those messages because, I mean, that mm. seems to be something happening on universities over the world mm. that they say the universities are becoming a bastion of the far left. So if you have a conservative or a, or a non-far left position mm. that you're fearful, and, and I guess from you mm. being in the act position mm. of the political mm. spectrum, which we will not mention how it's sometimes <laughs> referred to, it would be more likely for you to receive well, you those can, things, you can for example. It, I, mean, oh, I, know, I, just, I don't yeah. want to, I'm not yeah. into pigeonholing. Yeah. So I I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. I think I think identifying you as a libertarian is a really interesting interesting way because maybe not all ACT yeah. members have always been libertarian. So yeah. that 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 brings some clarity to perhaps your positions yeah. on things. So I, what I'm I mean, saying is you're yeah. more likely to hear from those people being where you are politically. Yeah, well. I, I suspect that there's a bit of a sampling effect there, and that's probably true. Um, I but, guess I'm just trying yeah. to figure out mm. what are people fearful to mm. say and talk about because. I don't experience that. Mm. Maybe it's because I'm an ex-talkback host who's opinionated, mm. arrogant, and has a mouth that goes mm. faster than his brain. I don't know. Yeah, and if you want to get into sample selection, in a way, you will probably be the last person to realise this is happening. This <laughs> and, uh, well, no, and I'm, it's not just because of you know the the kind of vocation and and personality that you have. It's obviously done really well for you in this role, but. Um, you're not someone that sort of seeks approval for your views often. Well, so. but in saying that, we all seek mm. approval on some level. Mm. I mean, you seek approval amongst your constituents in Epsom mm. because that includes a vote. Yep. I seek approval amongst mm. people listening or watching this podcast mm. because mm. I want more people doing it. So yeah. on some level, we all do. Yeah, we do, but not not generally for having your own thoughts. Yeah. You know, that's that's the thing people are worried about. Is there anything you're afraid to talk about? Like, is there something right now that if I mm. brought up, you'd go, oh, no, I'm not talking about that. Oh, like, are you, do you yeah. feel hamstrung? Yeah, look, I'll give you an example. Um, I was on a panel about three weeks ago, um, and the panel consisted of a, a, an academic from Massey, which I wasn't sure was possible, but anyway, um, that's what he Hush. claimed to be. And, no, Massey's a good place. I have a good friend to Massey. And um, then uh, Tracy Watkin, who edits the, the Herald, uh, sorry, the not, not the Herald, the Sunday Star, the competition to the Herald on Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, the question came up of, of should the um, Christchurch terrorists manifesto have been censored? Now, I had taken the position for a long time it, it shouldn't have um, because I, I read it, um, funnily enough, because I was on lockdown at the University of Canterbury at the time and I was right. with a bunch of students obviously crapping ourselves and we were reading everything to try and figure out what was going on. So you got it immediately? Uh, well, we found it, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I, think it, I think it's a piece of crap, really. But I also know that the, now that it's been forced totally underground, um, there'll be kids reading it in their parents' basement. And that really, really scares me. So you're I, you're about you're about um, the best disinfectant to sunlight. Yeah, but but the the point of the story. Sorry, I've gone on a bit, but I had never said that before, mm. and I was never going to say it because I don't want in any way to be seen as endorsing the guy. Um, and some people will inevitably hear, you know, if I, I think people should read it. I don't think people should read it. I think I think some people should read it so there can be some decent critiques. For, so it sounds like you're not worried about saying stuff. You're worried about how it gets interpreted. No, no, no. The point the point is I only I only am saying that now, right? Because Tracy Watkin and this messy academic guy um, were on the panel, and they that it was you know when you're on a panel of three, usually it goes in order, and they both said, "Look, it's ridiculous. It shouldn't have been censored." And because they'd said it, I said, "Well, actually, I have not said that for the last." six months but I, I think they're right wow. and I'm glad they said it so yeah I mean there's an example um, of where 
Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I'm a bit like you in a sense that I'm used to getting a lot of criticism and I'm probably not so fearful of, of saying things. Um, but there's certainly a climate, in my view, where um, we're not very good at doing civil disagreement. And as a result, people really think hard before they say something, even if they think it, because they're worried that rather than people saying, OK, you think that, I disagree, it's fine, the world goes on, um, you know, you're going to get a Twitter pile on or, you know, you're going to get people attacking your place of work, um, you know, you, you're going to end up uh, being ostracised by your class at school or, yeah. or whatever. And a lot of people have that fear these days and I think that is a real problem. Well, look, on that note, it is uh, one minute to four and I know you've got a call coming at five past four that you need to be available for. So rather than going in and saying, I'll say it anyway, I agree with you about the Rugby World Cup that the government <laughs> should get their nose out of it. And it really irks me when people say things like, oh, it's my right to see the rugby, it's a national right. And I always say to people, so before there was television, Mm. When there was a game at Eden Park or wherever, mm. athletic mm. stadium, whatever it was, did you have to pay to get in? And they'd say yeah. yes. And so, so you had no right to see the All Blacks for yeah, free exactly. then. Exactly. So you've got no right to see the All Blacks for free today. Yeah. and, and So I agree with you. And look, they, they can say an infinite number of people can watch it, but a limited number of people can be at, um, at Eden Park. But what I would say to people is if you have a right, somebody somewhere has a duty because a right is meaningless unless someone else has a duty to fulfil it. Right. And if, if I've got a right to watch the All Blacks on TV, um, then who on earth has a duty to make sure that there is a yeah. game of rugby <laughs> and there is an All Black team and they've got someone to play and it gets broadcast and sent back here? That's yeah. a lot of duties on a lot of other people. Because what happens next year if there's no All Blacks? Yeah, and I've, done, and I've done nothing for that. I mean, those people, you know, they probably expect the All Blacks to win every game too. That's my um, right, that they win the World Cup. Yeah, well, exactly, you know. And, and I always say to people who talk about rights, I say, that's great, but, you know, who's got the duty to, to fulfil it? All right, so obviously you think the All Blacks are going to win the World Cup. Last question, 10 seconds. Uh, if not the All Blacks, who? Um, look, I'd, I'd look out for one of those Celtic nations. I think the Irish, and I know they're not Celtic, but the Welsh, they've, they've been coming up. And I think it'd be kind of cool if one of them won it. I'd like to see the All Blacks, the game, All Blacks the game, Ireland in the yeah, final. Yeah, and the game needs to be diversified. You know, it can't just be England, France, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia. There's got to be, I'd love to see, if it's not the All Blacks, I hope it's someone new. Yeah. All right. David Seymour, leader of ACT, thank you for coming in. Hey, thank you. And we will hopefully see you again and we'll crack a beer and go for another half hour. Yeah, great. All right. Good <laughs> to see you. All the best. Alrighty then, uh, that's us done and dusted uh, for this week actually. Remember, we are attempting to uh, watch every All Blacks game live during Rugby World Cup here in the Department of Conversation. Next week, we have All Blacks versus Canada on Wednesday. I've got a very special guest we're lining up for that one. And then on Sunday, All Blacks versus Namibia. And between them, we have a Dick Frizzell sandwich. So All Blacks either side of him, Dick Frizzell next Friday are going to be live at 11am. Of course, world famous in New Zealand, world famous around the world artist, Dick Frizzell will be in studio having a chat with us about life, the universe and everything as per usual. Now, we're getting a bit of a website built at the moment. We'll give you more details about that as we go on. But if you want to know what we're up to, easiest thing to do is to like us on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash D-E-P-T of conversation, D-E-P-T of conversation. Uh, go like us there, which will give you all the updates you need to know. And uh, until we see you next time, hooray!